grateful to be with you. I'm Silas, the uh, interim lead pastor in this space, and uh, we are Bethany Northeast, one church among six. Uh, We're glad that you are here worshiping with us today. I'm grateful that we get the chance to learn together this morning, something we say very often, but as we read God's word, we want to be people who let God read us, to let his word read us. And so we want to find ourselves in the text We want to find ourselves in the story of Scripture, and in this story, we want to realize that God is inviting us into life, into new life, every time we engage the sacred book. So um, as we do this, let's continue on and do so with uh, openness and sensitivity to what God is doing in our lives. If you would, I want you to think of the best day of your life. doesn't have to be the best, but one of the best days of your life. Do that now. Think about that. Picture it. Envision it. Maybe you can feel where you were. Where were you? Who was there with you? What were you doing? If you uh, feel so bold to share, in one sentence, um, what would that day look like? What is that day, the best day of your life? Anyone care to share? No pressure. Andy. Birth of a child. Come on now. Others? Any other takers? Wedding day, celebration, joyful. Love it. Others? Amy. Graduation day. Yes, I love it. Any others? Maybe one more. Sitting in the ocean in California, um, just spending time getting to get my 19-year-old daughter. Oh, so good. Ocean, ocean breezes, so good. You know, I love that as we think about the best days of our life, They could be these achievements, these career milestones, these school times. They could be a time when, like, large sacrifice has paid off, and it feels like there's payoff finally in our life. Maybe it was the birth of a child, right? Maybe it was something uh, a little more removed, like it was a concert experience that felt transcendent. Maybe it was that. Or maybe it was a sporting event. Your team wins something. That's exciting. That's really great. Just uh, for the Mariners fans out there, I know, (laughs) I know, you cannot win a championship if you blow an 8-1 lead. So Toronto has been struggling recently, but um, if you do happen to be on one of those days, like, that's exciting, that's good news. It could also be like you had a life-changing encounter with God. Maybe it was a life-altering moment, one of the best days of your life. Like, um... Like Ashley said, for me, one of the best days of my life was my wedding day. We were uh, married in Tennessee. We were, it was super sweet. We were in a barn surrounded by family and friends. There were trees and winter flowers all over. Super sweet, good time. So much celebration. Uh, Again, one of the best days of my life. I mean, we danced. We had so much fun. Take a look at this one. We're dancing, having a good time. What you don't see is I... um, 
in this picture. It's like a snapshot of such a joyful time. I actually had just stepped on Abby's dress. So like this picture, you can't see it, but my foot is on her dress and we stumbled right after this. So pictures can be deceiving. You know, every, every wedding is completely smooth. Nothing ever uh, goes up and down. But again, one of the best days of my life. We got married in January. Um, and later on in that year, on, in June, you know, I made a post on social media uh, expressing my gratitude for Richard and Mildred Loving, who, um, whose endurance and persistence made it legal for me and Abby to share this day, to have that time. Again, one of the best days of my life. And what I mean is, it was only 55 years ago, in 1967, that all anti-miscegenation laws in America, those are laws that ended racial segregation through marriage. Um, It was only 55 years ago that those laws were deemed to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And had to get to the Supreme Court to even have that debate to legitimize our, our marriage. My guess is we all know someone who is 55 years old or more. We might be that person. If that's the case, if that is the case, uh, that person has been, along li- has been alive longer than the legal precedent that makes it possible for Abby and I to be married in this country. So I make this post on uh, social media, just again, celebrating the endurance, the persistence of the lovings to make it possible for us. And I get a private message from one of Abby's cousins-in-law, and he's an Italian-American, ethnically, uh, racially, he would identify he's white. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what this is going to be about. Like, you know, you meet extended family, you get a message. Who knows, right? You don't, you don't know people super well. And he's in shock. He's in shock. And this wasn't on his radar. This doesn't compute for him that this couple made it possible for Abby and I to be married. Like, we can trace that back to a time, a period in time that was 55 years ago. What's striking is he's a lawyer. Like, he traffics in the judicial. He's a very learned person. And yet, when we look at the effects of racism in our country, and specifically look at how certain expressions of Christianity in America have given, at times, racism a mechanism to spread into many different areas of our life, including the spheres of law and regulation, this is the challenge we face today as Christians. You know, we asked the question a couple weeks ago, does the liberating message of Jesus, does the gospel, does the good news, does it bring freedom for all? Or has the message of Christ been so co-opted that it ends up furthering oppression? Another way of asking this is, is the good news really good news for everyone? Is the good news really good news for everyone? What I love about Abby's cousin-in-law is how outspoken he is. So we're connecting, we go back and forth, and then he makes this statement. And it's like he gets a moment of revelation, of self-awareness. He says, white privilege looks, in part, like attending your wedding a few years ago, celebrating everything, 
and never thinking twice about the other things at play. He's not going out of his way to be antagonistic or anything, but he's just like, oh, this, this is a moment. I've just never had to ask this question, to think about this question. It's never been on my radar. Two weeks ago, we started a series that aims to have frank, gospel-centered conversations about racism, about racial reconciliation, about racial justice. And to reiterate something from week one, racism is bad. We all know this. We would all affirm this truth. Racism is wrong. Racism is evil. You don't have to be a Christian to affirm this. In fact, most people who do would say, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just wrong. So as they do that, as it is wrong, another question that comes up for us is, for Christians, why do we say it's wrong? Again, the word racism isn't in the Bible. There are, there's no Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt not be racist. Jesus never explicitly, explicitly mentions it. And so if Christians and non-Christians alike would affirm that racism is wrong, what do we as a church bring to the conversation that others don't or might not bring themselves? This is what week one focused on. One thing we as Christians bring to the conversation about racism is a vision of humanity from a future perspective. So we looked at Revelation 7. And Revelation 7 gives us a vision of redemption that is cosmic, that is heavenly. We can all point out brokenness in our world today. The Christian faith, when it is faithfully expressed, recognizes the brokenness. And rather than being an escape to a different reality— the Christian faith, it gives us a vision of what redemption in God looks like that is relevant now, that's relevant for today, that people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue shall share community with each other. And in our sharing, we worship God through the ways that we share communion together. So Christianity faithfully expressed, it gives us a prophetic vision a foretelling and a forthtelling, right, of beloved community. It makes this world possible. That everyone would be able to commune together. This vision from Revelation 7 in week 1 led to last week where Karen built on this vision. Um, great sermon. If you haven't listened to it or heard it, do yourself a favor. Go online. Take a look, take a listen, because she invites us to see how the vision of community from Revelation 7 was lived out in Acts 2. And she invites us to live out God's understanding of unity that brings together people in diversity, not falling prey to a sense of uniformity. The unity there is bringing together in the diversity. That's what unity looks like. So in her message, we discover how the cosmic starts to become a little more concrete. Right? And then this week, we're continuing that trajectory that brings God's future vision, Revelation 7, and the early church together, Acts 2, today into our present. So from future, the past, into our present. And we're going to do that going through the life of Peter. 
We can't talk about the early church without talking about Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples during Christ's earthly ministry, and out of the whole gang, he's one of the most outspoken disciples in the group. I love how outspoken he is. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked a question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is what Simon Peter says. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. You can't talk about the church without talking about Peter. Did you catch what he said, right? Jesus goes so far as to call him the rock that the church will be built on. In Acts 2, we start to see this take shape. So in Acts 2, Peter gives his first sermon and 3,000 people come to know God. Monumental. Like, this is a big deal. In this sermon, listen to what Peter says. He quotes the prophet Joel. He says, In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men, they will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And he finishes that quote by saying, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's say that again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Two chapters later, Peter's going to preach another sermon. And this time, 5,000 people come to the faith. And in that one, it says at least 5,000 men. So there's more people involved. But at least in a span of two chapters, 8,000 people, he's preached two sermons. And they have been transformed in their lives. By all accounts, Peter is someone to emulate in the faith, right? And yet, if we follow the trajectory of his life, we come to find that his life, for all the highs, is also a cautionary tale about how we need to overcome our prejudices. Peter? This guy? This guy that just did this? Yes, this guy who just did this. Don't believe me? Let's explore together. From the moment he's born, Peter is formed by the norming powers around him. In his context, Judaism, adherence to Torah, lawfulness, and his posture towards Gentiles, those are some of the powers that he's being formed into from the day he's born. And so this doesn't make him inherently evil, by the way. Like, it's important to state that. He's a product of his time, just like we are all products of a context and time. And make no mistake, there is so much to admire about Peter. But just because he's the rock upon which Christ will build the church, it's important that we don't miss this key claim. Even with all his achievements, Peter's life is a cautionary tale about prejudice. Turn with me to Acts 10 and pay attention to what happens here. 
It's a pretty long chapter. I'm going to do a breakdown here for the first section, then we'll read together. But Acts 10 starts with Cornelius, a Gentile, who receives a word from the Lord. He goes to seek out Peter, and he's a centurion, so he has servants. So he sends them out to go find Peter. Right? Cornelius, he has servants. He sends them to go find Peter. He, he gets a vision, and he hears God say, you need to connect with this Peter guy. Meanwhile, Peter, a Jew, receives a vision from the Lord that instructs him to eat unclean food because in verse 15 it says, do not call unclean what God has called clean. So this is important because what's happening in this vision for Peter, right, he, he gets a separate vision, is there's food from all the places in the world that comes down and he's instructed to eat. And what he does is he hesitates first. But this vision isn't about just strictly consumption. What's being communicated in this vision is a communion brought by how Peter consumes. And so it's not just about eat what you want. This isn't a nutritional vision. It's a vision about who you bind yourself to through food culture. Food communicated so much more. This is the vision that Peter receives. So he receives this vision. And the thing that's scandalous about this is because the faith that formed Peter set him up to avoid his Gentile neighbors, to see them as different, you know, he was chosen and they were not. His formation said, God is the God of the Jews, not the Gentiles. We know Peter is aware of this distinction because he'll name this later on. But he acknowledges his formation into this separated view of the world. Inclusion, exclusion, who's in, who's out, what's lawful, what isn't. Peter has this vision of the sheet, of the food, eating, consuming. Join others that, are, that you've been deemed unclean. Join others. He has that vision three times. Three times. And then Cornelius, the people that he sent out, they find Peter. And Peter agrees to journey together with them to Cornelius' Cornelius's house, who, again, is a Gentile. And this brings us to verse 25. Acts 10, 25. As Peter entered the house... Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in order to honor him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Get up, like you, I'm just a human. As they continued to talk, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You all realize that it is forbidden for a Jew, that's himself, to associate or visit with outsiders. However, God has shown me that I should not call a person impure or unclean. For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. I want to know, then, why you sent for me. So Cornelius, he retells his story about hearing God while he was in prayer, and then he says, this is verse 33, Now, here we are, gathered in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has directed you to say. And this is key, verse 34. Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him, that's God, does what is right and acceptable to him. 
This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Did you catch that? Verse 34 again. Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. The good news of Jesus is that he is Lord of all. Think about what Peter has already accomplished. Think about the messages he's already preached. Acts 2. He's already preached. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. He's already preached. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's preached those exact words. Thousands of people have responded to his message of inclusion. And even still, God's not done with him. Even still, God's not done with him. Verse 34 again, this time in the contemporary English version, puts it another way. Peter says, I now realize that it is true, and or it, it, I now realize that it is true that God treats everyone on the same basis. This is striking, right? Like, he has preached the message about God being available for everyone. But now, in Acts 10, now he realizes, oh, who I thought was included in the all, that's a lot broader than I thought it was. This is instructive for us. Despite Peter's faithful work for the Lord, and even he still has to wrestle against the norming powers that have formed him, if you're following along in your bulletin, this is your first fill-in-the-blank. Reconciliation is a process. Reconciliation is a process. It's not one and done. If you claim Christ as Lord, we are called to this. We are called to this act of reconciliation. No one is exempt, by the way. Reconciliation is a process. And as we follow Peter's life, we see a trajectory taking place, one where his understanding of God's revelation in his life is continuing to open himself up to embody the hospitality and love of God revealed in the person of Christ by the power of the Spirit. I mean, again, consider how this story in Acts 10 helps us understand what Peter really meant in Acts 2. I was talking this through with Abby to, or, uh, earlier this week, and she puts it so succinctly. She said, in Acts 2, the message that Peter preaches, it's a message of inclusion that tries to make everyone else look like me. But that's not true, that's not true inclusion. That's exactly what Karen spoke on last week. That understanding of unity as uniformity isn't what God is about. If we bring this around to us, Peter's process should motivate us. From the moment we're born, if you're born in this country, we're being formed by the norming powers around us. In our current context, one of those powers, not the only one, but one of those powers is whiteness. And whiteness is, again, defined as a power structure, a way of seeing a world, a, a perspective 
right? A lens through which you see the world that privileges white pigmentation as being better than people with different pigmentation, right? So it's not about the pigmentation. It's how you see or how you hierarchy, how you view pigmentation. This is based on the lie of racial difference, the myth of racial difference, to create hierarchy of pigmentation with white pigmentation being on top. As we've seen over the last two weeks, this is not God's intention for the world. That's not how we are meant to relate with each other. We're not meant to relate to each other with a hierarchy being. And this works on us in several ways. When we think about how God reveals God's self in the world, part of our work as Christians is to push back against this kind of instinct that has formed us. Christians are not immune to cultural formation. Churches are not exempt from formation just because we worship God. A modern, a modern example of this is like how throughout American history, the definition in the Declaration of Independence, right? All men are created equal. That has shifted to include those who were originally excluded when the Declaration of Independence was written. I mean, it's hard to take seriously the claim all men are created equal when non-white men, women, and children were slaves, But this is the way that that language is expanding. Our understanding of that language is expanding. In Acts 10, we get to see Peter's understanding of God and humanity expand. That's what we get to see. And when it comes to racial reconciliation, we're invited into the same expansive process. Think about Abby's cousin-in-law from earlier. Even as a lawyer questioning the legal legitimacy of marriage was never a thought that he'd have crossed his mind. It just didn't exist because as a white man married to a white woman, he's never had to have that question. It's just never been on his radar. For him, legitimacy is always assumed. But like Peter, when he has an encounter with difference, when he realizes, oh, this isn't the same for everyone, That led him to a moment of recognition, and in his recognition, he was able to name his blind spot, which caused him to do some further personal study that he initiated by himself. This is the process of racial reconciliation taking place in his life. It's expanding, and also, full disclosure, it is hard. It is difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. At the same time, it's also a process that we are called into. If we want to live out that vision in Revelation 7, we are called into this space. And so reconciliation, it is a process, but what does that process do? Reconciliation is a process that restores relationships. Reconciliation is a process that restores relationships. In Acts 2 and 4, Peter proclaims that the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh without thinking twice about it. He makes God's truth and revelation known. And yet, when he encounters someone who embodies the world differently, this is Cornelius, 
in Acts 10, his sense of law and regulation, that opens up. The liberating gospel of God tells him, Cornelius is your brother. The Gentiles, they're your kin. I know formationally that doesn't exist for you, but let me give you a new vision of humanity. Let me give you a vision of Revelation 7. God meets him and says, these people, they're your kin. This is what racial reconciliation is all about. It's a process that restores relationship. It restores broken relationships so that we might live out that Revelation 7 vision. It's a process that restores relationships so that we might model a vision of community like the community in Acts 2. This is good news. This is good news. Of course, Peter's journey of reconciliation doesn't end here at Acts 10. Right? Just like he's had these moments of recognition all through his life, not one and done, not finished. Reconciliation is a process. There's one more passage I want us to explore today, and it's in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 13. Galatians 2, 11 through 13. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Even after Peter's encounter with Cornelius in Acts 10, the norming powers that have shaped his worldview, they don't suddenly disappear. In this passage, we just hopped in in the middle of a letter, right? But in this passage from Galatians, Peter, James, and some of the other disciples were primarily spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Paul has been doing the work, spreading the gospel among the Gentiles. So you have a group that's working specifically with Jerusalem, the Jews. You have another working specifically with the Gentiles. That's Paul, Peter and Paul. And they come together in Antioch. And first, Peter comes before everyone else from the Jerusalem envoy. And what Paul sees is, he sees that Peter has no problem sharing table fellowship with the Gentiles. Like the vision and realization he had in Acts 10. It has made a difference in his life. He is eating and sharing fellowship. He's communing with the Gentiles. He's not calling unclean what God has called clean. He's communing against his formation as a Jew. But then, once Peter's friends from Jerusalem join, all of them, in Antioch, he stops sharing table fellowship with the Gentiles. Once his people came, he self-segregates. And in so doing, the old blind spot he had before, his formation, it comes back into his life. So for all the good he has done in his life, Peter is never able to fully divest himself of the prejudices that he learned. You know that line in scripture, this is a famous one. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know who wrote those words? 
Paul will write that in the next chapter, in Galatians 3, as a rebuke to Peter and James. As a rebuke to Peter and James. So like we can preach that message. That's a good message. This is a message given to religious folk and says the way you're holding your religion is missing it. You're missing it. So we can have moments in our life. But what does this tell us? This is our last fill in the blank. Reconciliation is a process. It restores relationship and it requires ongoing participation. Reconciliation is a process. It restores broken relationship and it requires ongoing participation. Reconciliation is not a one-time event. It's a process that we participate in. It's a posture that we take up that alters our habits. It alters how we hold relationship. It is something that God invites all Christians into. You know, Peter, he's a disciple from Jesus' disciples to us today, to you today. We are all invited and called to participate in the restorative process of reconciliation. Because when we do that, we participate in God's making of heaven on earth a reality. Or the vision of the Christian faith is not escaping the world, but it's creating heaven now. Not a future that isn't yet realized here and now, heaven on earth. This is what Christians bring to the conversation about race, justice. This is what makes a difference. We root our ethics, our actions in the life and being of God expressed in the divine relationship that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who creates, the one who saves, the one who sustains. This is what our life is meant to do. Reconciliation is a process that restores relationship, and it requires ongoing participation. This, friends, is God's word for us today. Have you ever connected and traced the trajectory of a character like this? Typically when we preach, we, we can take passages, portions of scripture, and when we do that, we, we might miss the arc, the trajectories, the things that are right there. But we'll, we'll, we'll go over it because the size of text is too big. This is where, when we look at the text itself, the first instances of chapter, number, versing out the book, a mentor of mine says that we sometimes in the church suffer from versitis, right? So we've done this before, but what's John 3.16 say? Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, uh, shall not perish, but have every ter- everlasting life. Uh, I botched that, you know. <laughs> I should go to Sunday school. But here, here's also the point. What's John 3.14 say? Or John 3.15 we can take the verse and remove it from the context, and that passage is talking about don't do that. <laughs> don't, miss, don't miss the story. Don't miss the story of God. 
This is where things start to come in for us. We want to read the story, be wrapped into a broader story, and see our own stories as things that require ongoing participation. So what do you think? What do you make of our explanation, our exploration today? We might be feeling a whole variety of things. One, we might feel overwhelmed. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe if you've never read the arc of Peter's life in this way that we did, um, that's disorienting. Maybe the example I shared early on, it hits close to home. Maybe you feel irritated and you don't even know why you feel what you feel. Maybe you feel like you need to lament or repent. Maybe you're encouraged. Maybe you're annoyed. Be mindful, friends. Listen to how you're feeling. I love how Rich Velotis, he says, our reactions are always points of revelation. Our reactions are always points of revelation. What kind of revelation is God inviting you into as you react, in your reactions now? Take a minute and still yourself, friend. What is God calling you towards? What might participating in the restorative process of reconciliation look like in your life, specifically when it comes to race and justice? We're going to pause for a minute, reflect, and then I would like you to receive this prayer. God, we are sensitive to the heaviness and the weight of this process of your call. We're sensitive to the ways that reconciliation is ongoing. It's something you call us into. It restores relationships. It requires our agency. And so we pray that you would show us how we might participate and use our agency Use the things you've given us and the ways you've empowered us to join you in your, redeem- your redeeming work, to join you in making heaven on earth. We recognize that will look different for each one of us. We are all gifted with unique things. And yet, as we move towards wholeness, by your Spirit, show us how to do that better. Give us courage and strength, endurance and resilience, grace to know you more. And may we be received as your hands and feet extended in our world. Hmm. Yeah, God, we pray this with Christ by your spirit. And everyone said, amen.